All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. <laughs> Valora is the easiest way to send, swap, collect, and grow your crypto on the Valora blockchain. Download the app and start exploring dApps like JumpTask today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. Today, we got some some new faces. We got uh, Miles, who's been on the show before, of course. Welcome back, Miles. We've got uh, two of our senior analysts, Dan Smith and Sam Mark Fels. Welcome. Appreciate it. Happy to be the B team today. <laughs> Likewise, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fellas, this is gonna be a good one. We've uh, we shed the dead weight and we uh we got the all stars here, so this is gonna be a fun one. Um, it's been a it's been a spicy week actually. We got a lot of lot of good content, and maybe it makes the most sense to start with Lido because that made quite a bit of waves. So, um, there was a forum post that appeared earlier this week. Uh, the title of the, the post is introducing LDO staking. TLDR is to introduce an LDO staking module buyback program. It allows token holders to stake Lido in exchange for a proportion of Lido DAO revenue via an LDO buyback and distribute program. The idea is that this is going to increase LDO utility and having stakers basically serve as uh, sort of a insurance fund of last resort against some sort of slashing event. Um, I guess the caveat before we get too far into this is just to say it seems like at this moment in time that this was probably proposed by a couple of trading firms potentially working in conjunction. It's all speculation, so we don't need to name any names on the show, but you can kind of do your own sleuthing on Twitter to to find out um, who's being implicated here. So probably this was a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe pump and dump kind of action, but I think there is still, it merits an interest. It's an interesting idea, right? It merits some discussion. So um, whoever wants to take it first, like what do you guys largely sort of think about this? Yeah, I, I can jump in. Um, maybe just to touch on the last point, I think, you know, it speaks to the need to be, you know, very, very uh, wary of of some where these proposals are coming from, especially in, you know, like a bear market like this, where there's limited opportunities. And, you know, in general, you want, you know, these decisions to be driven by long people who have, you know, long term vested interests in these protocols. Um and, you know, as, as much as, you know, as much shit as the VCs get, like typically, I mean, that, that is typically why it's, you know, sometimes good to have a lot of the voting power, you know, with, with market participants like this, rather than, you know, potentially participants that are looking to hold Lido for a much shorter period of time and have, have ulterior motives. Um, so I would say use that lens, especially especially now in the bear market, as you kind of look at some of these proposals. Um, but then maybe just transitioning to putting that aside, the merits of the proposal itself. Um, I, I guess I am, I'll could just say I'm strongly opposed to the proposal. Um, and my two main issues were, I guess, one is just in the the context of the proposal, I think the the author said that you know Lido has 17 years of runway uh, based off of the assets in its treasury, um, and of course, you know Lido is 
probably has one of the more diversified treasuries in of or DeFi protocols, but that the majority of that, you know, quote unquote runway is in LDO tokens. Um, and to be able to pay, you know, I think a very significant contributor base at this point of around 70 or 80 people, you know, they need stable coins, they need cash, or at the very least they need Ethereum. You know, I think LDO, you know, plays into their comp for long-term, you know, incentives, but that's just very, very wrong uh, to be using, you know, native tokens as, as to calculate the runway. Um, and I think we can look back to, I think it was Hasu and Monet Supply wrote a great, you know, managing treasuries well uh, piece, I think a while ago. Um, so that was my issue number one is that, you know, they need this revenue uh, to pay for expenses. Um, and they have about, I think, $30 million of, you know, non-LDO expenses next year and roughly $30 million of revenue coming in. So if you send out half of that revenue or whatever was proposed to token holders, now you're, you know, operating at a loss and you have to go sell more Lido on the open market or find more VCs to buy it in order to extend that runway. So that's number one. And then number two is even if Lido was profitable um, and, you know, you kind of put these runway issues aside. Um, I think there's just far better ways to allocate capital um, to maximize long-term token value at this point for Lido than to start returning capital to token holders. Um, my general mental model for these things is that, you know, if you are profitable, uh, you will use the revenue to pay for your expenses for the next year. And then whatever you have left, you want to invest in basically the highest ROI opportunities, um, you know, for Lido, this could be, you know, investing in the staking router, um, really helping bootstrapping some of these new validator sets, uh, you know, really building out the dual ETH or Steeth Lido governance. Um, these are the things that's going to maximize Lido's, you know, long-term market share. Um, and then once you get to the point where you can pay for all your expenses, you've, you know, allocated capital towards the highest ROI opportunities, and then you still have, you know, revenue left over, just like a traditional company, that's when it starts to make sense to start returning that capital as dividends. Um, and so I don't know why, uh, maybe it's just the nature of tokens being, you know, highly liquid, um, but people tend to, to want to distribute capital back to token holders very in the very early stages of these protocols. Um, and, you know, I just generally think that it's poor capital management um, or capital allocation management. Um, so, yeah, we'll stop there. But Yeah, no, I, I strongly agree with your takes on that, Miles. And around the, to uh, the treasury runway thing, Absolutely. That's like super clear to me. Um, and I really don't think most people would have an argument around that. I think the real debate really comes around like revenue distribution. That's like where I, I see kind of two clear camps. And, you know, I'm firmly in the belief that the model you just described is perfect in reference to pure governance tokens. Like if, they, if the token doesn't play a direct role in the ecosystem, whatever that may be, there are plenty of different ways that we've already seen uh, protocols design a token, uh, an eco ecosystem around a token. Um, you know, like even in the most basic sense, which might not may or may not be a great model. I'm not supporting the model, but like Curve uses their token to 
create this like liquidity incentive program. Um, and they kind of like pull from the Bitcoin model. All right. So like that is one example of, of uh, where this could make sense. Um, but if in a pure governance token model, returning revenue to the token before it's like matured and to your point, like has no better places to reinvest the capital is like nothing short of mental illness. It makes no sense that like, I can't figure out a way to justify how that makes sense. And in the case of Lido more specifically, um, you know, after they take their 5% of all staking revenue that like right currently is annualized at about uh, $14 million. And, you know, obviously ETH price, ETH price fluctuations affect that. And, um, the current ETH staking rate affects that as well. But let's just use that $14 million number for now. And the proposal suggested that up to 50% of that 14 million could be redistributed to the token. So that's $7 million going to a $2 billion token. Like, why are, what, what is the, why are we doing this? This doesn't make any sense. Like, please go use that revenue to pay developers to expand your protocol, to improve your protocol, to improve the UX, to create a new service offering, literally anything. Like, the, this is their job, and it needs to be kept within the protocol to fund future growth. Yeah, Sean, agree with that, Dan. I also just think a good analogy for that is, like, what if a bank's only business model was to take customer deposits and put them in short-term T-bills? Like they wouldn't be making that much money. It's like the same with Lido. Like they're gonna have to diversify that product offering. I personally would love to see like a an LST back stable with that's like kind of like governance minimized and uh, most of the excess revenue actually flows to an insurance fund because like down the line, 10, 20 years, you could actually do some interesting things like with that stable coin after you have proper reserves backing it. So I don't know. I think just in general they need to focus on growth. And then also like I don't know if you guys remember a little while ago, they were talking about giving Steve holders governance rights over Lido because it's so intertwined with Ethereum security. But this is exactly the opposite of aligning incentives. This is literally trading ETH for LDO. Like it's value extractive for the LDO token. So very against this proposal. I think there's a lot of interesting things they'll be able to work in down the line, but I just don't think that time is now. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. And, you know, I, I think the, the, the faulty narrative that is, you know, used to support some of these ideas is that if you start paying out dividends or returning capital in some way, that's going to, you know, pump the token price. And now all of a sudden the LDO in your treasury is worth more. So you can, you know, have a longer runway. And that's why it's like a good capital allocation decision. But you just look back at protocols that have implemented these models. Um, you know, there's typically like a, a, a token pump narrative driven token pump you know in the month after the announcement comes out comes out the actual amount of revenue distributed to is typically negligible uh in reality and then the token you know declines back to to the norm um and so i think that's that's generally the way these things work but i would say lido actually does have a roadmap to returning capital um you know i think their goal is really to ossify the protocol um, that over time. And at you know, once they have really reached maturity and, and if they reach market dominance and they start, you know, basically ossifying these core components of the protocol, then it's basically just maintenance. Um, and at that point, it probably makes sense to start, you know, minimizing governance uh, as much as possible, which could, you know, be like removing this idea of capital allocation and just distributing, you know, the, the, the revenue back to LDO hold, holders. Um, so yeah, I think, 
I, I think we're in full agreement here. Hey everyone, we'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's gonna be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. You've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the ones that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're gonna be talking about ZK Tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, app change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods 20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. Yeah. You know what I was, there was a great thread, you know, he did it as a semi joke, but sort of poking fun at a real problem. Joseph DeLong uh, put together this thread on the Dow run lemonade stand and it was semi hyperbole, but definitely a real grain of truth and what a Dow run lemonade stand would be like. It's not like take your lemons and your water, whatever your raw materials and sell. It's like, well, what if, you know, we voted and like dumped out four fifths of the, of the lemonade to create scarcity and a liquidity sink. And, you know, what if your friend like lobbied you to move over to the other sidewalk? And this was just a living manifestation of that. And there's, there's like two arguments here, which is, do you have this model that, you know, corporate finance is kind of perfected, which is reallocating profits uh, back into the business until you don't have a better use for those profits. And that is when you distribute uh, dividends in the most in the most capital efficient way, which in trad by share buybacks. So like, what is the time for crypto protocols to do that? I think that's a matter of debate. It's definitely not when you're not profitable. That's definitely when you should not be returning uh, capital to shareholders. Hasu wrote a great, uh, great response to this where he gave probably more realistic numbers. He's an advisor to Lido. And the, the numbers that he gave were we're projecting Lido Dow to make 30 million in gross margin at the current price of ETH, spend 30 million in cash, and spend 15 million in token incentives. So basically, 45 million in total expenses, that comes to a net loss of $15 million. So if you're losing 15 million bucks a year, what you should not be doing is returning capital to shareholders. But yeah. there is like a debate of when that is. The problem with these sorts of like a focus on tokenomics in ecosystems where it doesn't necessarily make sense, like, Eats tokenomics, like the value accrual mechanism, the burn, I think is great. Curve is probably a good example, but it distracts from focus, which should be directed towards the product. And you get, you're trying to create these weird Ponzi loops that in this instance, actually take away from the business drivers of Lido. So Lido is a two-sided marketplace, right? With people that want to stake and deposit ETH and node operators, creating a you're like raising the uh, barrier to entry for node operators by creating a, a bond, right? That's additional friction. So not only is this, this isn't even like net neutral, this is net negative uh, in a proposal of tokenomics, which I feel like often happens when you're not focused on the drivers of the business and the financials. So, yeah. yeah. While, we're, while we're on the topic, uh, I would also like to, to poke at that scarcity narrative um, because typically these types of proposals either are let's buy back and distribute uh you know the native token let's distribute whatever the profits are just you know as is in kind um or let's take our you know revenue let's buy back and burn um what just this general idea of like when you're an application uh, and you're not trying to be a store of value or money in any way while you're literally lighting your revenue on fire um, has never, never resonated with me. And I think it's just, you know, while we're, while we're 
on the topic, I would like to extend it to these burn, you know, ideas as well, because you can just look back. It just hasn't been successful. And, it, and I think Ethereum is a very, you know, unique case where they don't want governance to be, you know, re they don't want governance period, right? That's, that's actually part of their value prop and, and, you know, being incredibly neutral. Um, and so if you don't want any sort of governance um, and your asset actually is, you know, you're trying to have moneyness around it, then some sort of burn could make sense. Um, but when you're building a product, that makes no sense. Yeah, I want to I want to dive a little deeper on this, Miles. So I, I strongly agree that like the ETH burn mechanism to try to be money to be the base layer of an like an economy built on top of it. Like there's something to that, and like let's leave that aside. But strictly looking at like this buyback and burn, uh, sort of this cap capital redistribution from protocol to token method. Um, if you think about like traditional finance and you know, that's that capital redistribution is can commonly done in the form of like cash dividends or share repurchases. Yep. And if you think about like a buyback and burn as a share repurchase, I'm curious to get your takes around that, because in TradFi, everyone has the same models that have like slightly different assumptions that all get to like the same ballpark value. And that's generally how stocks trade. Um, uh, that's significantly oversimplifying it, of course, but generally. Um, and then when you look at crypto, I guess to go further on that, like, so that's why share repurchases work. When the last thing you do on that model is get the enterprise value, divide by the shares outstanding, and you just change that shares outstanding number, then that's like how the capital allocation flows from the company to the shareholder. Yeah. Um, so like if you get have a $50 stock and you get $1 of dividend in cash, now you have $51. Or if I do a share repurchase, your, uh, that one share goes from $50 to $51. And you still end up with the $51, but in a slightly more tax advantaged way. And with buyback and burn methodology in crypto, like there are no models. So there is no changing that last number on the de denominator that effectively redistributes that uh, revenue from the protocol to the token holder. So I'm kind of curious to get your takes around that. Like, will that model ever work in crypto? Um, so I'd just say, like, just looking at the traditional side, like, when does this, when do these buybacks, like, make sense? And when do they not make sense? Um, and I'll maybe just give, like, two examples of, um, you know, so in one area where one company where it has actually made sense is Apple, um, right? And and it's only, this is very, you know, probably the past five years that they've started doing this. Um, and think about Apple's market position and the amount of cash that they hold. I mean, it is orders of magnitude, you know, more than we could ever imagine with a protocol at this point. Um, and, you know, it's it's been fairly successful, but they're in a very privileged position to be able to do that. Um, and where it doesn't make sense is basically, you know, kind of what we're talking about here is when there's just better capital allocation decisions. Um, you know, Bill Gurley, I'll, I'll have to dig up some tweets, but he he's he's written about this a lot. Um, and if you look at like, I don't know, just taking a crypto company, um, I know, you know DCG bought back a ton of shares uh, when they could have eventually used that right for um, the hole in their balance sheet that they created. Uh, so these things, you know, if you're, uh, again, it, it is a little bit short-sighted in some, in most scenarios. Um, but yeah, I think, I think maybe at some point we could get to the point where that, that makes sense. Uh, you know, if Uniswap has 95% market share of, of all like, you know, Dex trading and they want to start, you know, burning Uniswap because 
there's really nothing else to invest in, then that that could make sense. But I just think we are years and years away from an application. This making sense for an application that's building a product. Well, one of the other differences as well. So outside of the like capital allocation question is one of market dynamics and the whole the reason why share purchases work in traditional markets is they're actually relatively efficient, right? So it's kind of this idea of if you have a pie and you cut it into four pieces or eight pieces, you don't change the slice of the pie. But in crypto, markets just aren't that efficient. You just don't have that many sophisticated investors. And I don't think that the way that um, investors react to share repurchases in TradFi markets are the same way that they react in crypto markets. I just don't think they are. A consequence, the other consequence of share buybacks is you restrict the float um that's like not the explicit aim of a of a share buyback but that is a consequence of it and i do wonder if the reason why buyback and burn models in crypto get implemented are less about returning capital to token holders and more about intentionally constricting the float and pumping the price of the token like it's just that's a suspicion that i've always sort of had and wondered about um, yeah, I think I think that's the general thinking is that you yeah. you take these shares off the market, you know, but you're also like applying, you know, buy pressure as you're taking them off the market. Um, and that makes the token price go up, which makes your treasury go up. And you know, it just hasn't totally played out like that. Yeah. Yeah. I wish we would see more of a like a revenue share model, like kind of like Gains Network. So like they do a revenue share model, but they also make sure 20 percent of all revenue or something like that actually goes to a, a protocol dev fund. So like they've been, you know, incentivized since day one to keep shipping good products and, and building out their offering. And when they do that, they generate more revenue like that. That incentive makes a lot more sense to me than than, you know, the one with Lido that we're discussing. Yeah. Uh, maybe we've got a bunch of other stuff to to cover, so I want to make sure we move on a little bit past Lido. But one thing that I think would be worth getting into is the history of um, just why Steve holders deserve some say in Lido governance. And there have been a lot of sort of hot takes on Twitter about how I think, well, we'll get his take. Uh, I think I saw Vance tweet this out, actually, that uh, Steve is going to surpass what he said. He had some take about this, but basically just rapid growth of Steve and that it might be. I think his tweet was that it'll be the more common base pair than ETH on uh, LP pools. So that's a bit of a hot take. Um, I've kind of come around to it, but I know whoever wants to take, I think Miles, you were sort of involved in the um, the uh, governance yes. aspect of Steve Holders. And then if we could get into like how rapidly you see it expanding. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, there's two drivers. I mean, liquid staking protocols in general, um, and you could argue, have this kind of a principal agent problem um, where, you know, you could, you're, you're delegating your stake to a validator, right? Um, you don't necessarily have a choice of who it's delegated to because that's controlled through governance um, and like a whitelist in Lido's case. Um, and, you know, these validators are in Lido's particular situation, not actually putting up collateral. And so if there was a malicious one, you know, it would destroy their reputation and their business. Um, but that's really what you're banking on. Um, because so, so that's kind of like the risk here. Uh, and second piece I would say is, you know, Lido's goal is for Steeth to become as ubiquitous as ETH itself, right? Um, and to do that, you really need to break through kind of what I think about as like social scalability issues, which is getting the Ethereum community comfortable with, with 
that sort of roadmap um, because you know that that is what will lead to market share domination. Um, and to do that, you really need to do two things. You need to you know give Steeth holders like the ability to veto super malicious proposals that um, you know could destroy the value of of their Steeth by having you know some sort of attack, right? Um, and second, over time, you want to like ossify or cement parts of the protocol and remove governance, you know, governance's ability to change it. Um, and so these are things like, you know, the withdrawal contract at some point in a perfect world, that would just be completely ossified. And so, you know, as a Steeth holder, you don't have to worry about, you know, some sort of Lido governance attack that could, you know, rug all the all the all the steep or something like that and so this is to me is is you know it's like you're 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 trying to solve this principal agent problem in order to you know maximize the the total ceiling of possible market share that you could capture um and it was at a point where i think they had reached you know 30 percent of all staking uh market share and obviously we're like in the 90 percent of of market share uh within liquid staking and so ethereum community starts to get nervous and saying you know this is going to look like kind of like a cosmos chain if this is what you know the status quo is where we have maybe 100 150 validators but that's against our you know principles that's that's not how we designed ethereum um and so you know i think all of this like the dual steeth eth or the dual steep Lido governance, um, the ability to, you know, add new validator sets with the staking router, including permissionless ones. Um, this is all going towards, you know, okay, what do we need to do in order to get the community comfortable with, you know, having steep basically as the, the canonical liquid staking token uh, with winner take all market share. And I think they're on the right track, honestly. Yeah, not to put Vance in the hot seat, but he uh, that tweet stated that staked ETH would be the more common base pair by year end. Bold take, my friend. Um, but I, I totally agree with with Miles' sentiment there. Like, you know, staked ETH is Lido's product, and they're just trying to improve the utility of that product and give the token holders more rights in the system. And I, I think that's broadly uh, kind of a good way to go about this. But um, yeah, I'm curious. Like to watch Lido grow. Obviously, it'll grow with. The market share of total staked ETH, but I'm curious if that like 30, 33% market share number kind of like acts as this stone wall for their growth. Like that, I, I don't, I, cause to Miles' point, right? Like, do we really want one p- ecosystem member? And sure, there's, you know, 28, I believe is the number of total validators operating uh, on behalf of Lido's total stake, but do we really want to shrink? Uh, the total amount of validators to that number. And I, I, I don't know. I generally think the Ethereum community will kind of push away from that. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of really interested to watch Lido's growth and whether or not that 33% of total stake number becomes an issue going forward. And right now, just for context, uh, they're sitting at about 31%. So I have a question to you guys. Let's just say, let's remove the sort of social scaling problem um, and whether or not Ethereum would accept that. Let's also remove the factor that there might be some sort of catastrophic slashing event or technical bug in Lido or something like that. By the way, we didn't even, it's kind of a shame we're talking about this because V2 actually ended up shipping this week, which is uh, super cool. So props to Lido. Um, There was, I heard Ren on the Zero X Research podcast, which Shell, Dan, and Sam here, they put together some great content. You should go over and listen. 
uh, but there was a there was a nut statistic. So there were nine different audits that were conducted on V2, and each audit up till the last one found a new bug, which Ren said he didn't know how to feel about that. I know how I felt about that, which is not particularly great. <laughs> you would hope by like four or five there wouldn't be finding these stuff. So let's just but let's remove the social scale up scaling risk and let's remove the fact that there might be a bug. I think in that world, you'd rather hold Steve than ETH, right? Like, why wouldn't you? It's just the Steve gives you some form of interest, right? Like uh, staking rewards and ETH doesn't give you staking rewards. And the ETH roadmap and monetary policy is clearly favoring stakers over holders, right? Um, everything from 1559 to the burn, and those are all done for reasons of credible neutrality, not like, you know, number go up reasons, but those are the reasons, uh, so I think to um, maybe defend Vance's point of view a little bit, like I, I think by end of year, that's a pretty bold prediction, but I do see the relative demand of Steve over ETH. Yeah, it's going to go up over time. It's like bonds versus dollars. Like you rather hold money that gives you interest. But the counterpoint in that example is the U.S. government's the only issuer of like what gets deemed as risk-free bonds, but there's multiple protocols that issue liquid staking derivatives of ETH uh, that use different models just very clearly. And, um, you know, Lido's the winner today. They kind of had a huge first mover advantage with being the first liquid staking token listed on uh, Aave. If you pull up the chart of outstanding staked ETH, uh, and then map over like when it got listed on Aave, it is very, very clear the impact that that had. Um, and so I'm curious, like, you know, we've kind of like adopted this as the the safest liquid staking derivative as, as a market. And um, I don't know, like, I'm just really interested to watch this market play out as other players get a little more mature and uh, have a slightly different offering, whether that be like, um, you know, Frax built this kind of Ponzinomic model where it has a two token model that provides higher yield or Coinbase has like a higher fee, but it's, you know, super easy to onboard new people. You get to do it directly through the Coinbase app. There's like these different trade-offs with all these different models. So um, I don't know, like that's that's my issue with how does one staking liquid staking derivative become the de facto uh, base pair is there's just so many different offerings that like ultimately I fear that we're going to get this like liquidity fragmentation in that world. Yeah, I, I, I totally see that. I, I, I do think that there's also a lot of forces that push it towards winner take all though, right? Because the liquidity, you know, basically begets more liquidity. Begets liquidity. Uh, yeah. And so on, and there's a lot there. I think one one thing that you know uh, been thinking about, and we work closely with the Liquid Collective team, and you know there is a part of the market that just from a you know compliance standpoint can't really touch Lido um, because in order you know maybe they're like a centralized custodian that is a fiduciary on behalf of their their customers, and they cannot you know basically support staking to non-KYC validators and, and, and they don't kind of reach their, their levels of compliance. Um, and so, I, and, and then there's another part of the market that just ideologically, you know, would prefer like a rocket pool sort of, you know, um, model. And I think that that's why the staking router is so important because you can, you basically have your existing set of whatever it is, like 30 validators or something like that. Um, and a hundred percent of deposits are going there today, but you could also see them adding different validator sets that cater to those other parts of the market. 
um, and then splitting how the deposits are allocated across those different validator sets as well as within them. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and so I, and I do think that there's it's a big question here. Of, you know, I would say that the the Coinbase success has been both ease of access as well as compliance, um, which I don't think a lot of people think about. And that kind of like ties together this whole conversation of go use that fourteen million dollars to build out the staking contract. Yeah, <laughs> and that was the first thing Seriously. you said, Miles. Yeah. Seriously, you know what else they could use it for? So. I saw a DGen Spartan tweet this. I didn't realize this, but Bybit, their liquid staking program, they just convert you directly into into Steeth. I mean, if they're just like a front end distribution for go do more of that. That's that's phenomenal. Go do that with um well it's now it's like like KuCoin or whatever other like kind of tier two exchanges will have you, basically. Kraken's got some problems with their staking, go do that. Let them be front end. I mean, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff like that. Um even even that there was a synthetics proposal to uh, onboard onboard Steeth, I'm pretty sure as well. Was that synthetics or was that some crafty BD work? I don't know. That that is what that is what they should be doing. They should yeah. be opening up new distribution channels, pipelines. Like they should they should be. They, this is a winner take all marketplace, and we want to be the winner. We want to get critical mass. That's what they should be doing. Yeah, another thing I'd love to see would be uh, kind of the use of account abstraction with Steeth on L2s. Like, as you mentioned, Mike, like, obviously you want to hold Steeth, like, barring contract risk, like, over regular ETH. So if I could pay for, you know, transactions on Arbitrum or, or Optimism uh, in Steeth, like, that would be fantastic. I would always have a Steeth balance in my wallet. So that's another thing they could work on. Sorry, this wasn't even on the roadmap or the notes for today, but I got a shout out Ethereum. I saw Kai Sheffield at um at uh sorry, geez, at Visa tweeting out the, some of the tinkering that they're doing on account abstraction and acting as a paymaster, and I was blown away by that. That they are understand what that is and they understand the like the opportunity for Visa. You know, you've seen a lot of like proof of concepts from banks talking about tokenization of real estate i'm just sorry my eyes just glaze over for that so but this like visa as a pay payments giant understanding account abstraction of where they fit in the ecosystem is freaking cool i would be long sorry not financial advice but visa yeah they're like the they're probably the largest institution acting crypto today that like i really think actually gets it and has a super cool like approach to it so Huge shout out to Kai and the team at Visa. Just awesome. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It's, you know, very much so signal over noise there. Um, and I do think it'll be interesting, though, because we have, you know, so many of these uh, very early stage kind of account abstraction, you know, infrastructure providers that have really been kind of pioneering um, everything about this this new development with 4337. And then you have you know, incumbents like Coinbase uh, and and Visa that that could also be extending their capabilities, and it will be interesting to see how they think about like a buy partner build with um, you know how to deal with this infrastructure, especially the ones that are not as sophisticated as Visa. Yeah, guys, I want to make sure uh, that we have some time to talk about stacks. Um, Got to give a shout out to Sam here. Wrote that I think the hundredth report on Blockworks research, and it was a pretty much a blowout on on stacks which uh thank you personally sam uncovered some some pretty critical bugs uh in that ecosystem that hadn't necessarily been there before by the way big fan of would and stacks in general and definitely pulling for them but 
it was fascinating. Um, Sam, maybe could you just give us kind of like an overview of what you found in the, in the Stacks ecosystem? Yeah, for sure. I'll do my best to kind of TLDR it as quick as I can. So essentially, uh, Stacks uses a what's called a proof of transfer consensus mechanism. Basically, miners on the Bitcoin layer can send Bitcoin to two different stacks, stacker slash staker. They call it stacking. That's probably my least favorite part of Stacks, to be honest, out of all this. I really don't like that term. But anyways, they uh, send it to two random stacker addresses and then dependent upon how much Bitcoin they send, um, in relation to other people who are submitting bids, uh, they have a higher chance of uh, mining the next stacks block. Uh, and then STX stackers are able to earn native Bitcoin yield, which is actually really cool. I love that aspect of the proof of transfer design. Um, but the problem is, uh, there's actually three problems. Uh, the first one was there was a critical bug discovered in the proof of transfer stacking mechanism that allowed a stacker to trick the contract into thinking they had more STX stacked than they actually did. So they wound up earning 15 and a half or so Bitcoin over a 20 day period, uh, basically stealing their share of Bitcoin in relation to other stackers. So that's pretty bad because um, STX stackers are going to be charged with signing peg in and peg outs uh, when they launch S Bitcoin. Like so to date, they don't have like a native Bitcoin bridge, but they're looking to build that out because they think it's been kind of one of the growth uh, hurdles for their ecosystem. Like their main goal is really to onboard that $500 billion of idle Bitcoin capital into DeFi and making it productive. But had this uh, this bug occurred with S Bitcoin Live, all of the Bitcoin in the bridge would have been at risk. So that's the first bug. The second one is Bitcoin MEV related, basically F2 pool, the mining, mining pool that has a 15% share of Bitcoin hash power has been excluding or ignoring other stacks mining uh, bids and including only their own. Um, so that way they can send as little Bitcoin as they want to to STX stackers and still win the block since they're the only uh, competition for that block. So that's really outright censorship and kind of the first example of Bitcoin MEV that I've really seen. So it's it's super interesting. But yeah, F2 pool over the last six months is pretty much had 70 to 100% market share over block building on stacks. So obviously that's that's a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, and then lastly, uh, stacks has been experiencing more reorgs as of late. And there isn't really a kind of a root cause known by the team. They think it's kind of just connectivity issues, but this is really bad just because stacks is going to undergo the Nakamoto upgrade and they're going to introduce fast blocks. So they'll have blocks in between different settlement blocks. So that way the block times are faster and they're not plagued by Bitcoin's time to finality, but I'm not so sure how this is going to impact that. Um, so definitely something to, to keep an eye on, but yeah, uh, reorgs are obviously bad because they're going to reduce network throughput, potentially like have some nodes drop off the chain, make it less secure. So there's definitely a lot of problems that stacks needs to combat. Um, but it's cool that they're trying to tie their chain closely to Bitcoin because me personally, like I'm very excited about the prospects of bringing DeFi, DeFi to Bitcoin. Valora is the ultimate wallet for exploring the Celo ecosystem. Easily access over 50 crypto assets and 30 dApps for swapping, sending, and growing your crypto, all from your mobile phone. If you want to see real-world use cases for crypto, Valora's dApps page is the easiest way to access a growing list of the latest DeFi and ReFi applications. Dapps like JumpTask come to mind. JumpTask is a Web3 gig marketplace that connects over 2 million micro-freelancers to worldwide earning opportunities. With JumpTask, you can earn crypto by completing tasks 
answering surveys, or even sharing internet. Then simply withdraw to your Valora wallet to send, swap, collect, and grow your portfolio. Download the app and start exploring today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. That's valoraapp.com forward slash empire. Yeah, it was it was interesting just, um, you know, we're, yeah, concluding this MEV season with Hasu. And frankly, I didn't even think to look at Bitcoin as a source of MEV or just understand what was going on from a mining perspective in Bitcoin. But maybe we should have. I mean, this is a super interesting exploit by one of the larger um, mining pools out there. So my understanding is it's not huge dollars, but it's still worry, worrisome, right? It's just some good old fashioned <laughs> censorship and MEV extraction. So yeah, it was just, just interesting. It yeah. also, I think shows the challenges of, you know, it's not, I mean, Stacks has been called a roll up at this point. I'll just say, I'm not even hundred percent sure I know what a roll up is, but you know, <laughs> the, the, the arc the design architecture between, you know, Stacks as opposed to some canonical, like optimistic or ZK rollups on Ethereum is, it's definitely different. And I, I admire the work because I'm, I'm a lover of Bitcoin. I want Bitcoin to succeed. And I think all this stuff is super cool too, but there are definite challenges like the super small block size and the 10 limit um, or the 10 minute, you know, block times that stacks is going to hurdle. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have any other thoughts or conclusions. One thing to, to note, honestly, because it does sound bad for stacks, but at the same time, you know, it's really no different. Having one Stacks block builder is really no different than having an L2 with a centralized sequencer. So they're kind of in the same position in a way. So I think that's worth pointing out. It's just a little bit more worrisome because obviously in the case of Optimism or Arbitrum, they're directly incentivized to operate it in an honest manner. But this is an external party. So yeah. who knows how it, you know the incentives get switched up um, once S-Bitcoin goes live. Yeah, it's like if Optimism, you know, gave that centralized sequencer to a searcher, you know, or like a trading firm, right? They're obviously going to extract value from it. Um, I think that's, I think that's all right. And yeah, I really appreciate you digging in because I don't, you know, spend a ton of time in that area of the space. Um, but it does speak to kind of the challenges of, you know, it's, we've talked about like Bitcoin as an app chain. And, and I think this is kind of deviating from really what would be considered like Bitcoin's original purpose, but I, I still think that there's a lot of, of really interesting space to explore, and it's just a question of whether you know, bit like Bitcoin's role in DeFi is is kind of truly like being exporting Bitcoin to other DeFi ecosystems that are maybe better suited for it, um, or if there is a way to kind of you know achieve what Stacks is trying to do. Um, it's unclear to me if that's you know kind of them trying to get you know a square into a round hole um because it's 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 just you know very very uh different than than the design of the base layer yeah yeah no kidding and uh one interesting thing from this though was the nefarious actor was f2 pool in the in the case of stacks and we've also seen them you know do uh have a little nefarious activity on eth uh, back in the proof of work days and they were like kind of messing around with timestamps on the uh, consensus layer and if you uh, actually uh, credit to a guy named Alex on Twitter, well, maybe we can link this thread in the show notes. But um, he actually found a address on ETH mainnet that's a tied to the founder or what I believe to be the founder of um, 
F2 pool. But nonetheless, it seems to be an F2 pool address. And this person is the withdrawing SNX, the token, to Ethereum mainnet, bridging it to Optimism, and then redepositing it back into Binance, and then just like looping that process. Um, so I don't, I can't come up with any good reasons as to why that is. Um, but given their previous behavior in the space, I think that's kind of something to keep an eye on as uh, this this uh, event develops. Yeah. Likely not good. Whatever they're doing. <laughs> it's like I don't know. Maybe they're just bored and they're trolling Binance. I have no idea. But that seems like uh, that's generally not the case. Uh, there must be some financial incentive here. Yeah. Maybe just uh, before we, I mean, we can close with Tether and the announcement that they're going to start uh, their own little Bitcoin purchasing program. But do you, what do you guys think in general about just ordinals and BRC20s? And I guess there's kind of like the ordinal NFT inscriptions. And then there's also like a, it's part of a wider attempt to actually build out robust DeFi on top of Bitcoin. Um, I'm kind of two minds about it. I, I, yeah, actually, I'd love to get your guys opinions on it, but I've, I've thought a little bit about it myself. This, at first I thought it was a bit odd or like, this is just kind of a fun experiment, but I don't know, the more I've thought about it, I guess, you know, if, again, back to this like framework of Bitcoin as an app chain and, and really a place like their, their product is this extraordinarily censorship resistant asset, right? Um, you could, those same properties actually make for like NFT storage pretty and minting, um, you know, somewhat attractive. And I guess I would not expect there to be like NFT fi on, on Bitcoin, um, just because it's not like, you know, if it's just people holding NFTs there and, and buying and purchasing occasionally, then that makes sense. Um, but I wouldn't expect any, you know, maybe where it becomes like high volume trading of these things that happens somewhere else. Um, but yeah, I think I think they also overtook you know Ethereum uh, NFTs in volume this past week. So there's something there. It's at least speculation. Yeah, I'd say fad. I don't think it sticks around for that long. Like I do love the one thing I like about it is obviously the immutability of Bitcoin. Like a lot of NFTs on Ethereum aren't as you know immutable and censorship resistant as a lot of people think. Um, but I don't think there's any legs to it for specifically static images. That was so bad last bull run <laughs> at this point. Like I think the the fun part about NFTs at this point is just the programmatic programmatic ability. God, I can't talk right now, but you know what I'm trying to say is of the NFTs, like blend, like I'm not saying that's actually a good product or not, but I just think the interesting part of NFTs is is the ability to add utility to them on like a smart contract enabled platform. Yeah, I think I lean in your direction, Sam. Um, but I I kind of like the the idea of ordinals. Um, I mean, if we like take a step back, Bitcoin has a fee problem. It needs to generate organic fee revenue at some point. Like I'm not saying its model won't work, but that is just a problem that it's going to have to deal with at some point in the future. And at least with the rise of ordinals, we can point to this and be like, okay maybe we can innovate something because prior to that they'd be like well i don't i don't know we'll come up with something eventually but and that was that was the thick of it and now at least we have something to point to be like okay maybe this you know the whole speculation side of this not great but let's try to like build this out into a more sustainable ecosystem and uh, that's kind of how i'm viewing it so tend to agree the speculation side of things is a fad it's just like it's it's clearly not built properly right so like when you trade these brc20s you like buy you're creating an NFT that says like, this is for 
3,241 tokens. And then if somebody wants to buy 5,000, they'd buy that NFT and then keep buying NFTs of other token lots until it added up to 5,000. Like that, that's never going to work. That's not scalable. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's a lot more than just, you know, JPEGs, right. Um, that make it, NFTs a lot more interesting. I mean, even Lido's, I think the withdrawal process just involves an NFT, which is just another example, right? You see NFTs and, you know, swap V3. Um, there's a lot more that can be done here than, but it is, you know, a vehicle for speculation and, they needed one. Strong agree. And just to give one more quick example of like a cool, useful NFT uh, was the interchain scheduler in the Atom 2.0 white paper. The idea of tokenizing future block space, and those are obviously non-fungible, each block is unique, with an NFT was super interesting. Like, I think we're going to get really cool use cases for NFTs. I personally believe those use cases will be broad, more so on-chain than off-chain, right? Like, to Mike's point, like, I also fall asleep when you talk about tokenizing real estate, um, but I, I, I tend to think the the technology unlock of an NFT is really huge. We just don't know what to do with it yet, but I think we've already started to see some ex- exciting examples uh, arise. And that also flows to Sam's point: like when NFTs get more programmatic and, and like more use case around them, um, I tend to think that won't be on Bitcoin. Yeah, I I've kind of thought about this a, a decent amount, and I think. Ultimately, um, first of all, I kind of just am more in favor of like market type planning than central planning. And like if the market wants to do this, I don't know. I just think central planning goes wrong very often. And I didn't love I kind of had a knee jerk bad reaction to the Bitcoin high priest saying that maybe miners should censor these transactions when ordinals were originally taking off. That just really rubbed me the wrong way. So who knows? And eventually Bitcoin had to figure out their monetary policy because once the block rewards went away, like they had low transaction fees and that was not going to be enough to secure uh, a network that they were hoping to grow at the size that, you know, like to really grow. So I think this is like an interesting solution. I don't love DeFi on Bitcoin, but I do like NFTs. I think NFTs, like it's been interesting to watch NFTs on Ethereum. Like when are these going to move to Polygon or Arbitrum or something like that? They don't because there's a provenance. There's like a little bit of cachet for like minting on a more expensive chain. Bitcoin fits that to a T and Bitcoin has culture too. Like they've got culture. They've got a, they've got a fan base. So I don't know. I think I, I like the ordinals. I'm a little bit less of a fan of uh, DeFi on Bitcoin, but still worth paying attention to. Um, let's transition here to Tether and maybe we could close on this topic. And uh, frankly, I would love to get your guys thoughts. So we just got the latest uh, attestation report from Tether. Um, and this, I think, Dan, you were the one who pointed out that this, there was a, I guess this came from BDO, which is uh, which is not top four, uh, one of the big four, but it's number five. It did come from the Italian branch. And I say this as an Italian, so I mean no slight against the good folks of Italy, but I would like to see this come out of America. I'm not going to lie. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was, uh, it looks like everything is sound in, in terms of their balance sheet. They did announce that they were going to be basically reinvesting 15% of net operating profit into Bitcoin buys um, and in gold as well. So we'd love to just sort of get all your guys' thoughts about this. What do we think? Good idea? Bad idea? How are you thinking about it? I mean, Tether's a business and they want to make money, so I get it. Um, As long as that's with 
the profits and not my deposits. I would greatly appreciate uh, if deposits are backed one to one. We don't need any more fiascos like that. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. This is I think this was their first attestation with BDO. Um, I think that's a huge step in the right direction. I, I uh, hear your sentiment on the Italian branch of it. Like, all right, well, what's going on there? Um, but oh, Dan, do you not trust Italians? Hey, with a name like Dan that's Smith, you'd never call. believe it. But uh, also <laughs> got some deep roots in the Italian heritage. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's cool. I think the so people were threading about uh, the buy pressure on Bitcoin, and this is like a fraction. If you if you like annualize the revenue they made in Q1 and assume that they continue that out, I uh, forget the exact number, so I'll ballpark it at like $400 million of Bitcoin buy pressure. That is an absolute fraction of the annual minor issuance or minor subsidies. Um, so it's cool, but you'd probably need to see like USDC and, and Circle and uh, like the issuer Paxos of USDP and like all these other stable coins as well kind of participate in this. But, you know, Tether is largely the largest stablecoin, uh, so I don't know. It's it's cool, but that's about it for me. I got a question for you guys. How in the world is Tether not in any way impacted by the banking problems in the U.S.? Like their liabilities are U.S. dollars. They have to hold them somewhere, and those banks likely have exposure to U.S. dollar denominated debt, which has been the you know, obviously the root cause of the banking crisis. So I just don't understand how they haven't been affected at all. <laughs> I, yeah. And I, just I let me layer on because there was a worry a little while ago. I don't know if you remember a Chinese real estate developer called Evergrande coming under an enormous amount of stress. And the worry was because the word has been, you know, bond traders, uh, they don't trade anything on like Tether's behalf. They don't know any other traders who, who uh, and like, they don't know anyone who trades on Tether's behalf. So the speculation was always that they must be trading Chinese commercial paper. Then Evergrande imploded and they said, um, we're not impacted by this at all. So Sam, I think the only logical answer to your question is that they were in China. They dodged it perfectly. Then they went to the US and invested in US treasuries. They knew the banking crisis was coming and now they're back in China. I think that's a perfectly logical explanation. That's definitely what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that was the funniest part about everybody fleeing USDC during the DPEG to USDT, Tether. And it was like the implication is that, that there's no exposure to the U.S. Uh, banking system, which I guess at that time was probably a good thing. But, um, you know, broadly, you probably do want exposure to the largest financial uh, economy in the world. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that's up to them. I don't think any banks are servicing Tether. I think they've got... Uh, yeah, some some red flags would come up on a you know uh, a conservative bank's compliance department's DD. Um, but yeah, I have no idea. I think I, I think you could like we've had tether fund for for years now, right? Um, and it comes and goes in waves, and you can spin up a story for exactly you know the worst case scenario here that makes a lot of sense, and you can also you know just kind of. I, continue to blissfully ignore it, which is basically more or less what we've been doing. Um, and who knows what the truth is. Um, yeah, I would, I would be very, uh, disappointed if this was another, you know, LFG approach to, uh, diversify, you know, some sort of the collateral into, into Bitcoin, um, which we've seen go poorly, especially, I mean, all this 
remember what happened with that. It was like, yay, all this buy pressure on Bitcoin. And then it blew up and we're like, no, all this sell pressure on Bitcoin. <laughs> so, you know, you could see, could see that too. Um, but I don't, I don't feel very strongly in either direction. I think, I think at this stage, I think it's okay to demand transparency, especially for something as impactful as Tether as it is $82 billion market cap. I don't, understand the justification for being so opaque. It simply should not be this difficult to get more insight and transparency into their balance sheet. And I don't know. I feel like, to be honest with you, my like knee-jerk response to this was, yeah, Doquan was like a year ago. Um, if like this Bitcoin, like is buying Bitcoin now going to end up being a poor financial decision? Probably not. Like we all work in crypto, like I'm pretty bull. I'd be bullish at this, at this price level. And they'll probably, it'll probably end up being a good financial decision. I guess my question is, what's the reason why they're doing this? Because if it's an optics and marketing decision, then I really don't like it, to be honest with you, because just pattern matching, I, you know, have sort of negative associations with who's done that in the past. So I don't know. I... I think it's something that's interesting to watch and I would love to see the sort of pressure just ratchet up on Tether to just be more transparent with their books. Like they could be. Yeah. I, I don't understand why we don't insist that they aren't more transparent. I just think they should be. Yeah, I, I think we have insisted. I, I think the obvious answer is they don't really want you to know exactly what's on <laughs> there. Um, or that that's like the skeptical view, obviously. Um, and then on like why they're doing this, like I, I would have to, I, I don't know a ton uh, of background on like the history of like the team that runs Tether, but you know, they could be like OG Bitcoiners that just, this could be like some sort of ideological thing. Um, or, you know, it could feel like it's a hedge on kind of you know, some tail risk, you know, black swan event with, with a lot of their, you know, the credit backing their collateral. Yeah, I think the reason if I'm the Tether founder to do this is either A, make it all back in one trade, or B, like I'm trying to position myself as the future global bank, you know, because obviously if you think crypto, if that's part of your thesis, you're going to need Bitcoin liquidity. So I guess it makes sense to like start buying now as opposed to later. Um, but yeah, those are the only two reasons I could come up with. I feel like everyone on this call is going to know this, but do you know which blockchain settles the most amount of tether oh yeah it's an extremely highly reputable uh blockchain please no more questions like these yeah. <laughs> good old justin sun's tron with like what is it 50 some odd billion yeah 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 it's uh the gap is actually widening you can see uh yeah it's the it's the, the amount settled on tron is growing faster than ethereum some of the Gulf is winding there, but just I don't know what's up with that. I've been wondering for for too long. I need to go listen to his uh, uh, Empire podcast with with Jason, but some I want to hear his answer because it, I, like why I need I need answers. There's no economic activity over there outside of Justin's two billion dollars in their version of Ave. So, like I don't know, I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, 
we end this podcast with more questions than answers. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it actually it actually is crazy. One last thought that just two months ago, USDC was sitting at a similar market cap to Tether, and now it's less than half of Tether's market cap. Like, what an absolute botched, you know, result of all this banking problems in the U.S. Like, we had Circle, such a good entity, fighting the good fight, and now it's just. Yeah, gone the other direction. So that's unfortunate to see. I would bet that's temporary. Mm -hmm. I have to bet that that's temporary. Yeah. I actually thought, uh, Miles, on Reverie's podcast, I Pledge Allegiance, that was a great interview with Diogo and um, and uh, Nathan. And they talked about these sort of market distortions that can actually exist for multiple years. So let's say you were a competitor against Celsius. And you were just watching these these guys the models like the numbers didn't work but it just worked for like six years and they ate up all the AUM it looked like they were winning for so long it's like a thousand days in the life of a turkey and then boom you know the head gets chopped off and there you are being served on the platter and I think in crypto that's especially true I mean these distortion fields can run for it's not like weeks or months it's years and it makes you question all these decisions and I think it's a good reminder. It's just a good reminder when you see something that you're just like scratching your head over and just can't make sense of. You're just you're not crazy, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes me feel great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, fellow turkeys, this has been a lot of fun, uh, guys. Thanks for thanks for standing in. This was a, a super fun roundup. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers, Mike. Yeah, thanks. for sure. Thanks, guys. See ya. Cheers, all.